Welcome to the Chicago Writers Association podcast, a resource for writers. I'm your host, W.C. Turk, author and playwright. This podcast is designed for authors and readers alike, an author's resource and a showcase for some of the preeminent contemporary and independent authors from here at home in Chicago and around the world. Critically acclaimed author Libby Fisher-Hellman writes Strong Women. From her Ellie Foreman mysteries to the suspenseful adventures of blonde and beautiful Chicago P.I. Georgia Davis, Hellman has taken us around the world to war and across history through the eyes of female characters, you know, the other half of the world. Her latest book, A Bend in the River, is a 2021 Chicago Writers Association's Book of the Year award winner for indie fiction. No spoiler alerts here. We are after the nuts and bolts of writing effective fiction, especially strong female characters. Libby Hellman, that's with two N's, dot com is her website. Libby, congratulations on being one of uh, this year's Book of the, uh, the Year Award winners at, uh, at CWA. Thank you. It's, uh, it's pretty gratifying. I always describe myself, I don't know if you know this, who this is, is the Susan Lucci of the mystery world. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm nominated a lot, but I never win, except um, this time I did. So there you excellent. go. Well, that, that's great then. Let's start with this. Give our, our readers a little bit of background about your writing. Give us a brief synopsis of A Bend in the River. It's about two sisters whose family and village is destroyed in the first or second chapter of the book Mm -hmm. during the Vietnam War in Vietnam. And they are forced to go to Saigon, which most many refugees from the war did go to and um, make their make their life over again. And they have a they're, they're only three years apart, but they have very different views of the world. And one sister becomes a barmaid at a GI bar in Saigon, and the other one fights for the Viet Cong. Uh, on, on opposite sides, as it, as it yeah. were. But they, but they both start off in the, in the same place with the attack on their village. Right. But you render um, in, in very strong, um, in very strong imagery. It, it's, it's really, it's really very stunning. Thank you. And I haven't gotten to the end yet. So, so no spoiler alerts here, but I'm, I'm about, about a third of the way through. So oh, I've got, I've got a ways to go, Oh yeah. but, but the setup, the setup is, is really expertly done because you're already leading us down this road, the, the sort of, the sort of tumbling, rolling hillside, I suppose, where, where a person picks up momentum as they continue to fall, where we don't know what awaits them at the end. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're a white American woman writing on the experiences of two young Vietnamese sisters, circa the, the Tet Offensive, 1968, 1969, a world away in a war, a culture apart, how do you set out bridging that terrific gap? Well, you know, it wasn't such a big, big a gap as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in college during most of the Vietnam. No, I was in high school and then college during most of the Vietnam War. And I was, you know, an activist at the time. I was anti-war. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really consider the Vietnamese side of it. 
back then it was all really much more about the U.S. and the soldiers and sure. did treat the soldiers pretty badly when they came home. That was true. That that wasn't that wasn't one of our finest moments. But anyway, mm-hmm. being a young adolescent or post adolescent myself at the time of the Vietnam War, I could get into that. I remember what it was like back then. I remember what it was like in the late 60s and the most of the 70s. So um, that part of it was was easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a lot of research, though, and I was in Vietnam for three weeks um, in before the pandemic started in 2019. So between that and reading a lot of literature that came out of the war, Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, uh, I actually ended up buying, um, Stanley Carnow's history of the Vietnam war. I forget the title of it, but it was a history of the war and, um, looked up dates and looked up and actually got a character out of, uh, out of it. It was, you know, a dry historical book, but he talked about a character that I ended up putting in the story whom you have probably met, but you don't know that she's important until later. And you, you really immerse the reader in, in that experience as well. There's, there, there's a map of Vietnam, and, but then there's, there's, also, um, there's also pronunciation. Yeah, that was the hardest part was, yeah. you know, it's easy to write the, the correct spelling, uh-huh. but my audio producer, my, the, the woman who narrated the audio book and I, had we ended up hiring, well, the same woman who helped me with all of the honorariums and the um, customs to make sure that I had those right, mm-hmm. um, went through the pronunciations of all the names and some of the towns with us. And she, my narrator did a fabulous job. She really did. She got Viet- them right. Vietnamese is, is a tough language. I, I, I worked uh, I, I worked for, uh, for a logistics company and we handled uh, Vietnam. And it's, it's a, it's a tough language. It's very nasal. Yes. Very, yeah. Very. And, but the, and there's, there's also, there's also a, a lot of cultural affectations, polite ways of, of speaking to people and, and not speaking to people. That was something that, that I'm sure you picked up being there. How important is travel and being in a place, uh, especially a foreign place to, uh, to a writer? Oh, it's it's critical. Even just taking pictures on the street, which mm-hmm. you know, I took rolls and rolls and rolls, and mm-hmm. smelling the smells and um, tasting the food, and yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you can get, if you can do it, it's great. It's really, really, it's it really makes a difference because you can come up with the sensory details yeah. that readers like to hear, like like to read about, and and the and the challenges and faux pas of of uh, of interacting with with people from a different culture right is... well, back in the back in the 60s and 70s it was it was a different culture than it is now i mean yeah. you would not believe you know for people who've gone to vietnam they know recently mm-hmm. they know that you know it it is communist in name only mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like china i mean there are more young people on motor scooters trying to break in and make it rich <laughs> than you would ever believe. I love this line, and, and I, I probably won't do proper service to the name. It's spelled in the book as 
Tam with a uh, with an accent mark um. over the A, but Tum Tum is is how it's pr uh, pronounced. Um, Tum slowed down and coughed up phlegm. She squatted on the narrow strip of beach and worried her hands through her hair. I love I love when authors have such a command of the language that they're able to flip an adjective like worried to a verb. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But language is very malle malleable. Sure it is. Particularly the English language. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that that gets to the, the root of writing, which is, you know, what do you put on the paper? Yeah. yeah. How much and how much is too much and how much is just enough for a reader to really to encapsulate a setting or a time or a feeling or an action. But it, it's such an action word, the way you use it there, worried her hands through her hair. Yeah. There's, there's an encyclopedia of information about that character and where she is at that moment using that word. Yeah. It was, it was stunning, stunning. What is the key or, or the necessary diligence in creating and writing a substantial central female character? What is the key? I think it helps to be a female. Okay, okay. A woman. Um, we've seen the world differently uh -huh. than men do. Uh -huh. And um, we understand how men see it. I, well, I'll speak for myself. I think I understand how men see the world. Uh -huh. It's not how I see the world, but I can still write about men. I can still create male characters when I need to, but I prefer female characters because I think that they have not only the sensibility of a female but they mm -hmm. do understand men and males or they try to mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. in a way they have more and they and there's sort of a cultural default when you say building a character there's there's an abstract non-gender designation there but but we we seem to culturally automatically default to a strong central character means means a a a male character. I would take issue with that, but of course, um, of course, a woman not only has to understand the sensibilities of a man and yeah. females, but you know, there's the whole orientation of family and home, mm -hmm. and it's usually mm -hmm. the woman. Even though things have changed somewhat, it's still yeah. back. Home, it certainly was the woman's job to provide the home and the meals and the cleaning. And um, there, there is a, a there are a couple of lines where. Um, the younger sister, uh, Mei Ling, mm -hmm. uh, Mai, Mai, as you pronounce it, kind of rebels against the stereotype and says, you know, she may, you know, our father made, made our mother go out and feed the goats and, and, and uh, till the land and then come home and make dinner on top of it. And, you know, taking, taking lunch hour and doing his, having his way with her. You know, there was no way for her to say, ah, I'm not in the mood. I mean, they're just it was just what it was. But you, so a woman had to do a Vietnamese woman yeah. was definitely they were definitely considered second class citizens. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and my my point about um, about that, that sort of default to a male character when the designation is is in the abstract or or non gender was was really to kind of show the cultural pressure 
that mm-hmm. is th- that that we don't think about when we're when we're we're building a character. And so I, 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 I loved your explanation of that. Can, can a male character adequately write a strong female character? Or is that the failure of my, gener- of my gender uh, to, in not learning to properly write real effective female characters? You know, I, I think that um, John Grisham does, does a pretty good job, believe uh-huh. it or not. Uh-huh. Um, and there are a lot of male writers now that have female protagonists. Right. So I, I you know, it, because it, particularly in the mystery and crime fiction genre mm-hmm. and historical also, because most of the readers or the buyers of those books are going to be women. So a lot of men, men have yeah. started writing female oriented series. I mean, Michael Connolly has. Mm-hmm. And, well, and it's really, know. it's really always been that way that, that women have been, have been the 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 primary customers for uh, for for fiction in 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 particular. Right, it is true. Yeah. Although I just did a, a interesting um, Facebook um, ad campaign for my book Havana Lost, just mm-hmm. for for other, and I put both genders on the ad, and more men reacted to the ad than women, and I was really surprised at that. Really, like I put in gambling is one of the targets and so i think that's what brought them all in mm-hmm. all right <laughs> but that's but, but that, that's a that's a brilliant form of marketing and 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 I, i'm going to touch on that in just a moment but i i sort of wanted to keep do schools at at any level aid or impede that learning curve of 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 creating a strong central female character um or for all genders and 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 i i say for all genders because i i know my uh um, uh, a dear, dear transgender friend, uh, Delia Crop is listening. I'd love you to speak to that a little bit. Schools? Yeah, the just education in, in general sort. I think, um, you know, teachers have so many pressures on them that this would not be a priority mm-hmm. in, their, in their English curriculum or their literature c- curriculum yeah. until you get to college. And then I think it's sort of who... Uh, it's sort of random who, what kind of a teacher you get. Yeah. Yeah. Professor that you get. I don't, I don't, I think only if it's a, it's a very small school with a very esoteric curriculum. I mean, like um, uh, what's not Bowdoin in Maine. There's a, there's a women's and it's a literary college and it starts with a B and I'm really bad because I'm having a senior moment and I can't think of the name of it. They might. They might have a course or they might have people that guide, you know, mentor other right. young women that are that are wanting to learn how to write that kind of a character. Uh, let's uh, let's flip over to marketing since you since you started that uh, oh. that ball rolling here a little bit. I think it's it's incredibly important. We, we talk about the craft of writing. Uh, we all too often and, and I've I've talked about this on numerous occasions on my, uh, my arts radio show, we don't talk about the business of art or the business of writing. So you, you, brought, up, you brought up marketing and, and how simple tags on, on a promotion of, uh, of your book, uh, Havana, Havana Lost, correct? How that sort of bridged a gap to, to, uh, to male readers right? and brought in, brought in a number of male readers. 
Yeah, um, I would say, well, I didn't, not readers, but people who looked at the book. Okay. The marketing uh, campaign was a bust. Yeah. Just so you know. oh, okay. Okay. But that's, that, that's a hell of a first step is just to get people to notice you yeah. in the marketplace. So marketing and self-promotion are imperative. Uh, have you found a winning strategy for promoting your work or uh, a, a partial solution to promoting your work? Pay to play. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it's all pay to play these days. Yeah. Um, you know, people ask me, well, how much is it going to cost to self-publish my book? And I say, not, not a whole lot, but you better save your pennies for marketing because it's a black hole. And, um, you know, you can spend a lot of money if you're not careful and you don't know what you're doing or you don't have advice from someone who does know what they're doing. Is there something that's worked through time? There is one thing I think that never um, goes away and those are good reviews. And I think, you know, if you, you, they say that word of mouth is still the best way that a book gets sold. And that, and I believe that because, you know, every once in a while, a title that hasn't had any big marketing budget applied to it, you know, kind of, kind of slips through the ether and comes up to the top level of the sea. And I'm mixing my metaphors beautifully here. (laughs) And, um, you know, you know that it's been talked about by many, many people and it's, it's risen up. Uh, So, so I think um, good reviews and good word of mouth are the starting points. Uh, Barnes and Noble just closed up here by us. Um, I I recall uh, we're, we're in Rogers, we're in, we're in Rogers Park. Uh, oh. but so, but the, uh, uh, and this is at, um, uh, old orchard ball, the yeah, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of, that was the second place. Second signing I ever had was at Barnes and Noble old orchard. Right. That was 20 years ago. And I, I remember up and down Clark street, there used to be on, on, on almost every block. There was, there was a bookstore. Uh, now it's all it's all digital marketing or or prim- yes. primarily digital marketing. Yeah, well, uh, women and children first are still there. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, they're doing okay, from what I understand. I mean, it's you know, okay is relative because yeah. we're in the middle of a pandemic and yeah. Yeah. Um, bookstores are not known for being um, extremely profitable, but they're still there. Yeah. So that says something, but yes, it is on online. It is all online. I would say that ninety percent of my promotion dollars go online in one form or another. And there's sort of a direct marketing aspect to that, but it it can be far more difficult to to get over someone's innate disinterest or being overwhelmed by by the the number of things that are coming at them yeah are, are, are you finding that that sales have been inhibited with with the move to online or is it just different well for me it's actually been a whole lot better okay um, but I also I spend my I have I will say that I know my way around Amazon ads now yeah, yeah. and they believe it or not, are responsible for a sharp spike in my sales over the past year, although that can end at any time. And I, I spent, I spent um, some money and I took a class and I learned mm-hmm. the, how to do them and they're doing okay. Um, I'm now doing the same thing with Facebook because I'm 
so bad at Facebook ads. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm still really bad at Facebook <laughs> ads. So, um, those, but those two are the ones that are the most, can give you the most profitable return on investment for your money. But then there's a lot of other things that, yeah. you know, a lot of other places one wants to be. NetGalley, have you ever heard of NetGalley? Uh -uh, I haven't, no. It's a place for, well, traditional publishers as well as independent mm -hmm. authors and publishers place their advanced reading copies on NetGalley. Okay. Uh, and I just put up my book that's coming out in March for a month so people can download it and read it. Interesting, interesting. Review. Uh, we're so, going to be talking uh, in a little bit. We're going to be talking with David W. Berner, who's uh, who's moving, sure. uh, who's going to be publishing his first book on subtext, the, the online publishing publishing forum. Nice. Um, so, it, it, and, and that's, that's again, that, that kind of direct, di almost, well, direct email marketing, but direct marketing aspect. Well, email marketing is still very important. Yeah. They, they, they all say the most valuable real estate that you own is your newsletter list. Yeah. The people that you ask to sign up to hear from you somewhat regularly or occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, no one so can take that away from you. So you've got you've got two series and then and then some standalone novels. Correct. Yeah. Which which sells better for you? You know, it's it used to be the series, and yeah. now over the past year, it's been the historicals. Okay. They're, wow. selling, they're selling like gangbusters, and I'm not sure why that's happening, but I love writing them. Mm -hmm. So um I just finished a series book because I try to rotate between Ellie, Georgia and a, and a historical and then Ellie, Georgia historical. So I just finished the Georgia book and I'm, believe it or not, even though Bend came out, it seems like yesterday, I'll uh -huh. be writing another one, another historical soon. And I know the subject, which is pretty amazing <laughs> because usually I don't. I know the time and the subject, but I'm not going to tell you yet. All right, good. Well, uh, you know what, what, what when it comes out? We'll have you back. How about how about that? Love that. You know, I I, I, I threw a lot up on on the on the page here. Uh, one of them was writer's block. I have no idea why I put that up in regards to your work. <laughs> I do have writer's block. You know, and it it's really not writer's block. It's not knowing the next arc of the book. Yeah. It's yeah. You know, I don't outline. Um, I just start in. I I I try to craft a pretty good first sentence and then I just go and you know people either are people who outline or people who don't outline Jeffrey Deaver who is a very successful crime fiction author mm -hmm. spends eight months on an outline oh, it is yeah. so detailed he only spends four months writing the book wow it's wow written in his outline. I'm on the other side of the fence I don't outline at all but and neither do I as I keep going, see, but the first chapter already limits you, right? And the second chapter limits us when we don't outline. And so as we keep going, the book itself goes from a, it's like a funnel. It goes from a wide top to a narrow, like a, to a narrow slender cylinder. And there are fewer choices we can make that are believable and authentic. Yeah. And so, um, 
we end up having to kind of outline to keep ourselves from uh, <laughs> getting into territory that's totally un unsatisfying for a reader. So I, about the middle of the book, I usually start to put all my notes in, in order and say, and to see if I know where it's going to go, because I usually don't know. All right. Critically acclaimed author Libby Fisher Hellman writes Strong Women. Her latest book, A Bend in the River, is a 2021 Chicago Writers Association's Book of the Year award winner for indie fiction. Her website is Libby Hellman, that's with two N's, dot com. Thank you so much. Thank you. This, this is, is really, really fun. It was. Really it was it was a blast. And and I really look forward to speaking with you again. Our theme song is Midnight Ride by Dino Olovchic, which is available on Spotify. Just like this podcast from the Chicago Writers Association, which is also available on Apple Music and at chicagorights.org. Visit our website, chicagorights.org. The Chicago Writers Association serves as a resource for inspiration and knowledge about the arts, craft, and business of writing, and welcomes published and aspiring authors and short story writers from anywhere in the world. Visit chicagorights.org for details today. Until next time, remember, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. From I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by the great Maya Angelou.